1972, American TV networks canceled 12 TV shows for crimes they didn't commit. These shows were promptly forgotten by the public and faded into obscurity. Today, Chris Cooling researches these shows for a podcast. If there's a TV show that no one else remembers, and if you have earbuds, maybe you can listen to Forgotten TV. to Forgotten TV, the podcast that brings you TV memories of the 70s and 80s, from the fondly remembered to the obscure, short-lived TV shows, pilots, and made-for-TV movies. Coming to you from the 24-square-foot studio of solitude, I am your producer and host, Chris Cooling. If you've clicked on this episode and are listening on a web browser, you can subscribe to Forgotten TV on your mobile device and not miss a single show. Find it on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your podcast player of choice, or ask Alexa to play it for you. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a star rating or even a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podchaser. This helps the show become more discoverable to new listeners. First, a big hello to all the new listeners from Stuck in the 80s. Researching that appearance, discussing the top TV misfires of the 1980s directly led to the topic of this podcast. The Worst TV Shows of All Time If you were asked to come up with a list of these shows, which ones would you think of? Worst, perhaps, is subjective. After all, a TV show can be terrible from a critical perspective, yet still have entertainment value. Some shows are perceived as terrible just because the very concept seems ridiculous to base a TV show on. Some listeners of a certain age might remember Me and the Chimp, a 1972 CBS sitcom created by Gary Marshall, which featured a dentist, his wife, and two kids that lived with a chimp named Buttons that was a washout from the space program. Plot lines included Buttons losing a flashlight at the movie theater, learning to play basketball, and letting in burglars after being trained to open the door. Other shows have concepts that are extremely derivative, or so thin there's not really enough of a concept to begin with. A couple of examples that come to mind are 1979's Making It with David Naughton. The show was about the life of Billy Minucci, college student and ice cream man by day and disco dancer at night. His friends, as well as his rambunctious Italian family, feature heavily in the plots. Somehow, it seems like I've heard this before. You're so jealous of Frank Jr. Oh, shut up, will you? Hey! Hey! Boom! And the show, watch the show, stupid! Oh, come on. All right, come on. Man, 
And uh, eat. go ahead. Eat, eat. I got more pork chops, more spaghetti. Shaping Up was a 1984 ABC sitcom featuring Leslie Nielsen as the aged curmudgeonly owner of a health club. The show was pulled off the air after five episodes. Yes, basing your TV show on popular trends is a good way to make your show seem immediately dated once that trend goes out of style. In the last podcast, I touched on some choices from NBC's 1983 fall season and listed other shows on my recent appearance on Stuck in the 80s. You may have others you can think of. In 2002, TV Guide published their own list of the 50 worst TV shows of all time. Both Me and the Chimp and Making It made it to that list, along with Manimal, considered in the last podcast. However, I take issue with one of their top 10 choices. To discuss this show, we again visit the fall TV season of 1983. It was the year Carol O'Connor ended his 13-year run as Archie Bunker, and Archie Bunker's Place broadcasts its last original episode as CBS cancels the series after four seasons. The Disney Channel went on the air on American Cable TV. The Disney Channel is on the air. The controversial made-for-TV movie, The Day After, aired on ABC, depicting characters in middle America surviving a nuclear war. The Day After. Parental discretion advised. Lawrence, Kansas. Anybody there? Anybody at all? And more than 125 million Americans watched the 251st and final two-hour episode of MASH on CBS, titled goodbye, farewell, and amen. Then, in late September, in the same time slot on Monday nights that MASH had occupied, after MASH made its debut. But wait, let's back up first, all the way back to 1968. On New Year's Day, the Vietnamese People's Army and Viet Cong violate a holiday truce and 36-hour ceasefire by attacking U.S. forces. This is followed almost a month later by the Tet Offensive, which resulted in higher casualties and, for many, changed the perception of U.S. involvement in Vietnam. And the William Morrow Publishing Company releases MASH, a novel about three Army doctors. Written by Richard Hooker, a pen name for former military surgeon Dr. H. Richard Hornberger and writer W.C. Hines. The novel is about the fictional 4077th U.S. Mobile Army Surgical Hospital in Korea during the Korean War. Dr. Hornberger was from New Jersey, graduated Cornell Medical School, and was drafted into the Korean War. A thoracic surgeon, he served in the 8055th MASH, where he nicknamed his tent the Swamp. After the war, Hornberger notably worked in a VA hospital before returning to Maine to establish a surgical practice. The novel establishes the characters of Radar O'Reilly, Colonel Henry Blake, Hawkeye Pierce, Trapper John, 
Father Mulcahy, Frank Burns, and Nurse Margaret Houlihan. In 1970, 20th Century Fox, under the direction of Robert Altman, brings an adaptation of M.A.S.H. to the screen as an R-rated satirical black comedy with a heavy subtext of Vietnam War commentary. The movie would be the number one film of that year. In 1972, Larry Gelbart developed M.A.S.H. into a TV series for CBS. Several of the main characters from the film were ported over into the series. But the only actor to remain in his role would be Gary Burkhoff as Radar O'Reilly. Larry Gelbart would be a producer and writer for the first four seasons of the show. The other creative force behind M.A.S.H.'s early seasons was Gene Reynolds. In later seasons, Burt Metcalf took over as executive producer and showrunner. M.A.S.H. was an ensemble comedy drama, which bucked the normal conventions of television. As the series progressed, viewers could perceive a shift from being primarily a comedy with dramatic undertones to a drama with comedic undertones, as the original creators left the show and Metcalf and new writers took the reins, and star Alan Alda began to have creative input. Later episodes introduced experimental ideas, such as Season 7's Point of View, which provided a narrative through the eyes of a wounded soldier being treated at the 4077th. Season 8's Lifetime was presented in real time over the course of the show's 23-ish minutes. Season 9's A War for All Seasons covered events that took place in the lives of the 4077th characters over the course of the entire year of 1951. The use of a laugh track was a point of contention with the show creators, but CBS insisted on the use of one. However, it was never used during OR scenes when the doctors were working. A number of episodes omitted it altogether, and the laugh track became much more subdued in later seasons. MASH episodes imprinted memories on viewers they can remember decades later. Who can forget when Radar gave the rescued horse to Colonel Potter, when Frank Burns was left in charge and moved the MASH unit across the road, then back again the next day, when Radar read the telegram in the OR informing the crew of the death of Colonel Blake or the chicken story told by Hawkeye in the finale. MASH went on for 11 seasons and was well-received by viewers and critics alike. In 1979, it went into syndicated reruns. By the fall of 1981, MASH reruns were seen in 184 U.S. TV markets, sometimes being shown 16 times a week. 20th Century Fox used to say, The sun never sets on a MASH episode. Indeed, in some markets, you could watch it in the afternoon and again after the late news. As a result, it remains one of the most viewed and culturally influential TV shows of all time. The story goes that during the 11th season, the cast voted whether or not to end the show, and the only ones voting in favor of it continuing were Harry Morgan, William Christopher, and Jamie Farr. Even in its 11th season, MASH was still the number three show on television. CBS and 20th Century Fox, not wanting to easily give up the MASH money train, approached Larry Gelbart to develop another series around the willing actors. Burt Metcalf also jumped on board this project, along with three writer-producers from MASH, David Isaacs, Ken Levine, 
and Dennis Koenig. And over the summer of 1983, Aftermash was in production. CBS evidently had high hopes for this show. After all, they had done this before. Starting in 1979, Trapper John M.D. hit the air, and Pernell Roberts took up the character some 28 years after Wayne Rogers left off. Though technically the show creators considered it a spin-off of the Robert Altman film and not the TV series, there was even a lawsuit over this. It was a one-hour drama set in a major San Francisco hospital, where Trapper John was now chief of surgery. Trapper John M.D. was well-received, and one of the top 20 shows on TV. Setting aside the 8 p.m. Central Monday night time slot, the same one MASH had occupied for years, as well as an unprecedented $500,000 per half-hour episode, CBS ordered 13 episodes of After MASH and scheduled an hour-long series premiere for September 26th, starting at an early 7 p.m. Central airtime. The network kept details of this new series secret and did not preview any episodes for the critics. Even the fall network promos showed no footage from the actual show. The We've Got the Touch promo simply showed a very brief mess tent scene from MASH with the three characters and the after MASH lettering superimposed on screen. Of course, this is likely because there was simply no footage yet to show, as casting wasn't finalized until August, after 10 scripts were written. This is for a show that would premiere September 26th. This seems to be cutting it a little close, but this does sometimes happen in TV production. Well, what was the plot of this new show, and who would the new actors be? The new series would follow Colonel Potter as he takes a job at a smaller VA hospital in his Missouri hometown and would collect his old company clerk, Klinger, as well as chaplain Father Mulcahy to join him there. Several new characters would round out the cast. The show would be set at General Pershing Veterans Hospital, nicknamed General General, located in the fictional Riverbend, Missouri. The VA hospital setting would allow the show to examine what happens to returning troops in the aftermath of war, whether that be dealing with war injuries physical and mental, government bureaucracy, racial prejudice, as thousands of servicemen did marry and bring home their brides from overseas, as well as the everyday problems of reintegrating into a 1950s home front during peacetime and the rise of the Cold War. Jamie Farr floated the VA hospital setting to several MASH producers, and this idea was seconded by Harry Morgan. After encountering initial resistance to this idea, Larry Gelbart agreed to go with it. If the theme of MASH was war is hell, the theme of after MASH is that peace is no picnic either. The print ads teased Watch What Happens When Colonel Potter, Father Mulcahy, and Klinger Come Home, and showed an illustration of the smiling characters with Potter hugging Mildred with her back turned. Yes, viewers would finally meet the oft-mentioned and written to Mildred Potter, wife of Colonel Potter. This was undoubtedly the toughest role to cast. At least half a dozen actresses were considered before Gelbart settled on the then 70-year-old Barbara Townsend, who had already quit acting twice in her life, once in 1938 to marry then, in 1958, 
to marry again. A 45-year veteran of show business and an actress that truly had been around since the dawn of television, Townsend appeared on several early Playhouse-style presentations, very popular at the time. After living in Kenya for several years after the death of her second husband, she appeared in guest spots on shows like The Streets of San Francisco and Little House on the Prairie before being cast on Aftermash. Having never watched MASH, she started binging on the reruns to catch up on the show. We're bugging out, soldier. <laughs> the role of Klinger's wife had already been cast. Rosalind Chow had already appeared as Soon Lee on the final two episodes of MASH and would be returning for the new show. She had over a dozen TV appearances under her belt before this, as well as a TV commercial career as a child. I first noticed her on the Chinese Web episode of The Amazing Spider-Man in 1979. Oh, Max, you big clown. Now let's look at the completely new characters. The role of bombastic and bureaucratic VA hospital administrator and thorn in Potter's side, Michael D'Angelo, was played by John Chappelle. Chappelle had been in a number of one-off supporting character roles on Del Vecchio, the Rockford Files, Heart to Heart, and many more. But Aftermash would be his first regular series role. Mike D'Angelo, M.D. Angelo. Your M.D.'s at the back of your name. Mine's at the front. I'm the honorary shovel. Chappelle's mean-spirited executive secretary, Alma Cox, and perennial thorn and clinger side was Brandis Kemp. Kemp had previously been an ensemble cast member on Fridays, ABC's late-night live comedy show, and had been in little else prior to her aftermash role. Rules and regulations, Mr. Klinger, and regimentation. Those are the three R's around here. Record, Mr. Klinger. That's the fourth R. This incident is going on your record. A stain on your record is like a hot brand. It marks you for life. J.O. Sanders would play Dr. Gene Pfeiffer the idealistic, talented, and eager young resident surgeon. Mr. Sterner, I'm Dr. Pfeiffer. I'll be looking after you today. You weren't here last year. I'm a resident. You a real doctor? Yeah, I can do anything a regular doctor can do except putt. 64-year-old, going on 80, character actor Patrick Crenshaw would play old-timer Bob Scannell, a hospital resident of 35 years, thanks to his World War I exposure to mustard gas. And MASH supporting cast member Kelly Nakahara also joined the cast, albeit off-camera, as the voice of the hospital's public address system in several episodes. The theme music was composed by Patrick Williams. Williams had composed themes for The Magician, Mary Tyler Moore, The Bob Newhart Show, and Lou Grant. The theme song meshes the classic instrumental of Suicide is Painless with 1940s-era cocktail party-style jazz, while we see a collage of 1950s imagery setting the era for the show. Aftermash, Episode 1, September of 53, aired September 26, 1983. <music> Thank you. 
written by Larry Gelbart and directed by Burt Metcalf. The show begins with Colonel, well, Dr. Potter now, catching us up with his life via a letter to Klinger, who is reading his letter in jail. September 26, 1953. Dear Klinger, so glad to learn that you're back stateside. Less than glad to learn that things aren't going so well for you, about which more later. First, let me bring you up to date on yours truly. It's a joy being back with Mrs. Potter, whom you will remember I used to speak of so endlessly it practically added up to infinitum. I got off a real corker on her when I was mustered out of the service last month. The U.S. Army, which usually makes mistakes only on days that have a Y in them, pulled a boner and let me out one day early. It was a grand opportunity to surprise Mrs. P, and I just couldn't resist. I have to tell you that those eight steps up to my front door felt better than any victory parade I ever marched in. Quickly tiring of domestic life, Mildred suggests he pursue a position at General Pershing Veterans Hospital, 40 miles away. Visiting to check things out, he meets an old soldier that used to serve under him, Bob Scannell, who has lived in the hospital since 1918, 35 years, due to his exposure to mustard gas in World War I. Sergeant Potter? It's Private Scannell, Sarge. The 5th Cal? Bob Scannell, Fort Benning? Of course, I should have known you. You haven't changed that much. Hell no, just lost my teeth, lost a lung, lost my dog. Can't seem to hold on to anything anymore. How long you been here? Since 18, mustard gas. 1918? 35 years. Don't want to get well too fast. They might draft me again. He also meets hospital administrator D'Angelo. He is unexpectedly offered the chief of staff position, which comes with on-site housing. Meanwhile, Max Klinger faces a judge for arraignment. Maxwell Klinger, you're charged with operating a telephone in a bookmaking parlor behind Wolf's Barbershop at 4220 Stickney Avenue on the afternoon of September 26, 1953. How do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? Both. You can. Has to be one or the other. Then guilty with the explanation that I'm not guilty. If it pleases the court, I'm a Korean vet. In fact, I'm a Korean vet if it don't please the court. And things haven't exactly been what I thought they'd be while I was still over there before I came back here. It's like the biggest secret of the Korean War was that there was a Korean War. You know what kills me? Nobody calls it that. Police action. Korean conflict. Take it from me. It was a war. It was dirty. It stunk. At least let's call it what it was. Don't get me wrong, Your Honor. I'm no kind of hero. Couldn't wait to get over there. First thing I did when I got my letter from my draft board, I tried to shoot my big toe off. I'd have done it, too, but my foot was too fast for me. Maybe a medic, an orderly, a clerk. And most of what they told me to do, I couldn't unless I lied a little, stole a little. Somebody grab you and say, the ambulance is full. Corporal, go get a truck. Only you ain't got a truck. So you run down the road and you see a driver from some other outfit in the woods with a copy of Stars and Stripes and his pants are down, and then suddenly you got a truck. <laughs> get you a laugh in the Army. Here, that gets you two years. Or three. Anyhow, it's been no bowl of roses coming back. I married a wonderful girl overseas. Wonderful. But believe me, Eva Braun wouldn't get the kind of look she gets over here. We'll be all right, though. All I need is time, Your Honor. Uh, not the kind of time you give out. 
I gotta learn to stop taking shortcuts. I gotta put the war, the conflict, whatever the hell they tell me I went through, I gotta put it behind me. You think you can make that adjustment? I once picked up a heart with my bare hands that slipped out on the table during an operation. I used to have to throw away arms and legs that weren't even 20 yet. In between, I was sleeping on a two-inch thick mattress full of three-inch thick bugs and eating food that was pre-barfed before we got it. Your Honor, if I can adjust to that. It's from my CEO, sir. Colonel Sherman Potter. He's offered me a job in the VA as his clerk in Missouri. He says I can begin right away and take a civil service test later. This could be a fresh start for you. Oh, yes, Your Honor. Almost immediately, Potter comes to a disagreement with M. D'Angelo about whether or not to involve the police regarding a missing patient. A passing comment by Bob Scannell makes up his mind to go against M. D'Angelo and call the police. Unfortunately, the police find him at the chief of staff house with Mildred and a handgun. Potter faces down the disturbed patient, and the police take him away. Episode 2, Together Again, aired immediately following Episode 1 in that special one-hour format. Enjoying a cigar with Klinger, a distressed nun, Father Mulcahy's sister who's a sister, calls Potter and puts Mulcahy on the line, who is drunk as a skunk. When we had last seen Mulcahy, he was experiencing hearing loss from an exploding artillery shell. Returning to the States, Mulcahy traveled home to the Philadelphia area and was not given his own parish by the church upon returning home. Upset over his situation, he began drinking heavily. Potter arranges for him to have surgery on his left ear. Back at General General, Klinger, now hospital clerk, meets Alma Cox. You are sloppy, you are slipshod, you are careless. Your records are incomplete. Your inventory totally out of whack. In your issue book, you requested a gross of paper clips and two staple removers. I went through your drawers. I found you already had enough of both. You went through my drawers? <laughs> An executive executes Mr. Klinger. Her own orders and anyone who doesn't carry them out. Viewers are introduced to the eager young resident, Dr. Jean Pfeiffer, and a rare female patient throws a wrench in hospital operations, which leads to Klinger getting in hot water with Alma. It won't be the last time. And Dr. Pfeiffer has to face the uncomfortable task of having to tell her she has VD. While recovering at General General, Mulcahy provides some needed counseling to a patient getting used to his prosthetic leg, leading to Potter offering him a position as a Catholic chaplain. At the end of the episode, Mulcahy's bandages are removed and his hearing is restored. This episode served to set up Father Mulcahy joining the show as well as to introduce our two new remaining characters. There is quite a bit of material packed into its 24 minutes with multiple plot lines going. As a result, the resolutions to each story do seem a little pat and easy. One of these easy resolutions was Mulcahy's hearing. This was the result of a production decision. Because a deaf Father Mulcahy would have been difficult to write for, the producers decided to have the character undergo the experimental surgery in order to correct most of his hearing loss. His bout with alcoholism really isn't dealt with any further beyond a mention or two when he counsels someone later in the show. 
these first two episodes got an impressive 31 rating with a 47 share, meaning 47% of the TV watching audience that night were watching. This was the highest rated premiere for a new sitcom since Laverne and Shirley bowed on ABC in 1976. Now, an episode numbering note. I am using the same episode numbering convention the producers did, which counts the first two episodes bundled together in the premiere as two separate episodes. If the series had been rerun, they would have run separately. IMDb counts these first two as episode one, while Wikipedia counts them as two the same way the producers did. So the episode number may vary if you try to watch them sequentially on YouTube. Also keep in mind that at least one YouTube channel mislabels all episodes following the first one due to this very issue. This makes the next one, Episode 3, Klinger vs. Klinger. We open to the 1950s domestic bliss of Klinger and Soon Lee in their tiny apartment. Soon Lee wants to bring her family to the States, but they have neither the money nor the room to do so. At General General, a seriously ill patient is brought in with no veteran's ID card, and Potter admits him, taking responsibility. Mulcahy spends the episode writing a monthly report that no one will read. Meanwhile, Soon Lee decides to help matters and get a job, but Klinger's not having it. Soon Lee later witnesses Klinger defend her after a vet casually uses a racist slur. As the episode closes, Soon Lee writes her mother, promising she and Max will try and bring them to America as soon as possible, mentioning what a kind, sweet, and caring man her husband is. And wait till you find out who the unidentified veteran really is. This episode ranked first in the weekly Nielsen ratings, while the share slipped to a 37. Also this week, the series started benefiting from a strong lead-in audience from Scarecrow and Mrs. King, as well as started playing against Monday Night Football. Aftermash. Sponsored by General Electric. We make products that improve your way of living. At GE, we bring good things to life. I bet you did something today you feel pretty good about. Bet you did. So go get your Mars bar. Come on, you deserve the best. Can't you just taste that rich milk chocolate? Creamy caramel? And snuggle deep inside soft nougat. Big, fresh, crunchy nuts after nuts after nuts. This is what you deserve. Mmm. You deserve every big crunchy nut in a Mars bar. You did do something good today, didn't you? Wednesday, the Whiz kids don't know it, but they've helped a convict escape. And now reporter Max Gale is caught between some really bad criminals and... One million dollars. It's Whiz Kids Wednesday. We've got a way of having fun here in the USA. A certain style, a certain flair that comes through every day. You've got the touch.
Episode 4, Snap, Crackle, Plop. We again open to the 1950s domestic bliss of Klinger and Soon Lee in their tiny apartment. Klinger has managed to save up $200, and the couple are going to shop for that symbol of 1950s American freedom and prosperity, a car. Yeah, remember when Potter said Klinger could start right away and take his civil service exam later? It's later, much to the delight of Alma Cox, who, certain of his failure, brings in her nephew to replace him. Meanwhile, Mulcahy has to deal with a patient who thinks God is speaking to him, wanting him to die. And M.D. Angelo is putting up a new canopy over the entrance, even though new medical equipment would be a far better use of funds. You might see where these two storylines are going to converge. Of course, Klinger passes the test due to a bureaucratic technicality, and Miss Cox and Klinger have this little exchange which epitomizes their relationship throughout the series. Well, Miss Cox. Well, Mr. Klinger. Look, as long as we gotta work together. Forget it. We're enemies in the most primitive sense. Mongoose and Cobra to the death. My people have survived the sand, the infidel, and the eating of lamb's eyes. If it is to the death, Miss Cox, ladies first. <laughs> I'll dance at your termination, Mr. Klinger. May I help you with your cheap coat, Miss Cox? <laughs> Thank you. One so seldom finds manners in a simian. You're beautiful when you're vicious. Have a rotten night, Mr. Klinger. Have a rotten life, Miss Cox. Can I drop you anywhere? Perhaps down the elevator shaft? No, thanks. But can I throw you to your car? I think I'm going to enjoy this. Episode 5, Staff Inspection. In this episode character actress Anne Haney starts appearing as the hospital phone operator. She pops up in countless shows from this era and had recurring roles on Mama's Family, Matlock, and Ellie Law. A staff infection breaks out at General General just two days before a staff inspection is due, and rumors run wild. Mulcahy has to corral a hospital flasher, while Alma gets a bee in her bonnet about the staff and patients keeping alcohol hidden around the hospital and enlists Klinger to collect it all. Meanwhile, an old 5th Cavalry Army buddy of Potter shows up and gets a cancer diagnosis, and Potter has a last drink with his old friend. The ratings began to slide a bit with this one to a 28 share. Maybe it was the Green Bay Redskins game or the salaciously titled Police Woman Centerfold TV movie it was on against. Still, the show was the number 17 show of the week. Episode 6, Night Shift. Dr. Pfeiffer has to stay on duty overnight due to a call-in. And Potter is trying to have a romantic evening with Mildred. But a patient comes in and Pfeiffer has to call Potter in to assist. Klinger is also there, looking for missing mattresses. Mulcahy sneaks in a young boy to see his father, even though it's against the rules. Then it's Klinger to the rescue, when Mulcahy later gets stuck in the elevator with a lady of the evening, who has a lead on Klinger's missing mattresses. This episode featured David Graff as a patient. He also appeared on MASH as the tough-as-nails lieutenant in Season 10's A Holy Mess. Blake Clark also appeared in this episode. He played an MP in Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen. Episode 7, Shall We Dance? M. D. Angelo holds a morning staff meeting 
and everyone's concerns are ignored, except for his own and Alma Cox's. Alma has another bee in her bonnet, this time about the book From Here to Eternity because of its suggestive themes. To prove her point, she reads a lurid passage. After the meeting, Dr. Pfeiffer asks Alma Cox's assistant Bonnie out on a date, but she's not interested. She only has eyes for Klinger, who has to keep giving Bonnie the brush off. Bonnie directs Pfeiffer to another woman who will go out with any doctor, and before long General General is resembling passages from From Here to Eternity. But Alma stops by confession and admits her love for her boss as well as seeing the movie From Here to Eternity. As penance, she forgives Dr. Pfeiffer of his indiscretion. From Here to Eternity was a 1951 novel, which made it to film in August of 1953. And it's in this episode I started to notice the wonky timeline of After MASH, which is starting to resemble the same timeline inconsistencies MASH fell into. Just three episodes ago, it should have been December of 1953, based on the three months that had passed since Klinger's hiring. Yet, we are still three episodes away from Thanksgiving of 53, and six episodes away from Christmas of the same year. Episode 8, Little Broadcast of 53 This episode is set to the backdrop of Klinger starting a private radio station of sorts over the PA, KMAX, for the staff and patients of General General. New nurse Canfield is in over her head, dealing with the demands of the doctors as well as patients. Mulcahy tries to reach a patient who is unable or unwilling to speak, as well as another patient he can't get to shut up. Meanwhile, Pfeiffer is eating everyone's leftovers. Potter serves as a father figure to Nurse Canfield, who later steps up when the heat is on, and Klinger's music helps Mulcahy finally connect with that patient that wouldn't speak. A special credit at the end of this episode read, our grateful thanks to the Veterans Bedside Network. The Veterans Bedside Network began in 1948, lifting the spirits of hospitalized veterans by inspiring them to be the stars of their own radio production. VBN is entertainment of the veterans, by the veterans, and for the veterans. The volunteers bring scripts of favorite radio and TV shows. They bring songbooks with the lyrics to popular songs. They bring tape machines and record the productions. A link to this fine organization is in the show notes. Mulcahy's annoying patient was played by Timothy Stack, later known for Son of the Beach and My Name is Earl. And Alice Cadogan played Nurse Canfield. It looks like she stopped acting in the late 1980s, and she's married to actor Jeffrey Combs. Episode 9, Sunday, Cruddy Sunday. It's Sunday, and that means it's time for Father Mulcahy's Sunday sermon, the annual bake sale at General General, organized by Mildred, and Klinger working overtime as janitor. Old Bob Scannell wants cake he can't have, M.D. Angelo takes a shine to Mildred's niece, Charlotte, and Potter has to deal with freelance preacher and used car salesman, Reverend Purvis Gentry, whose style of preaching to the patients has dangerous implications. Reverend Purvis was played by character actor Jeffrey Lewis, who is highly recognizable. He has over 200 credits and has been in everything from Flow to Little House on the Prairie, Night of the Comet, Falcon Crest, and The X-Files. He died in 2015. Episode 10 
Thanksgiving of 53. It's Thanksgiving and a full house at the Potters. Daughter Evie and family, Klinger and Soon Lee, Bob Scannell, Dr. Pfeiffer, who of course shows up for free food, M.D. Angelo, Mulcahy with his camera, as well as several patients. Then the Klinger family from Toledo arrives. The closing credits feature the snapshots taken by Mulcahy throughout the episode. Actor Derek McGrath appeared in this episode, who has been in many shows and movies, but I'll always remember him as Dr. Jeffcoat on My Secret Identity. Episode 11, Fallout, written and directed by Larry Gelbart. We open with Potter in the kitchen with insomnia, talking to Mildred about the endless bureaucracy of General General. Dr. Pfeiffer has received a job offer in private practice, but the medical experience he is gaining is just too good to give up, not to mention the fact that he deeply respects Potter. It's movie night at General General, and during the newsreels, a story comes on about atom bomb testing, and a patient just diagnosed with leukemia mentions he was actually present for six of these tests. After further research, it seems he was also in a troop sent to clean up Nagasaki after the bomb was dropped. When Mulcahy is at his bedside to comfort him, he has visions of his old army chaplain, telling him he'd be perfectly safe. M. D'Angelo refuses to file the doctor's report stating his leukemia is service-related, due to the precedent it would set and the financial implications to the VA. Pfeiffer is angry enough to quit, but Potter talks him out of it, saying he would make a bigger difference staying at General General. During the episode tag, old Bob Scannell coughs and comments about his mustard gas lung injuries, saying, Thank God soldiers today don't have to breathe in anything that'll eat their insides out, and wishes Potter a good night. Wow. As a counter to the Pat story resolutions we got in prior episodes, we are presented with this one. Considered by many to be the best episode of the series, Larry Gelbart was nominated for the Emmy Award for directing in a comedy series for this one. He lost to Bill Persky for the Kate and Allie episode of Very Loud Family. However, Larry Gelbart did receive a Peabody Award for this episode. Episode 12, Bladder Day Saints a group of vets arrive for their yearly bladder inspections. Soon Lee starts volunteering at the hospital, and Klinger runs into an old Korea buddy, at first glad to see him, but his excitement sours when it's revealed he came back from the war missing a leg. Meanwhile, Pfeiffer has to deal with Krauss, a particularly obnoxious, demanding patient with nothing really wrong with him, but with high connections. When another patient dies, Pfeiffer completely loses his composure with Kraus after he demanded to be served dinner in bed. Pfeiffer serves Kraus as dinner all right, just not the way he expected. Klinger's friend in this episode was played by Kevin Brophy, who had appeared in an episode of M.A.S.H., and of course was Lucan in that short-lived series. Kraus was played by longtime actor Jerry Harden, recognizable for a number of roles, but many will remember him as Deep Throat, on the X-Files. Episode 13, All About Christmas Eve. Guess what time of year it is? People are buying last-minute presents, and Mulcahy is distributing gifts to the patients. M.D. Angelo and Alma are having a private holiday get-together, but Alma gets the wrong impression, 
the big news of the day is that Soon Lee is pregnant. Almost as big news is that the rec room at General General has been gifted with a TV. But it's easy come, easy go when a visiting cop literally shoots it to death. And Klinger faces a choice when he finds a passed out drunken Alma with incomplete reports due that night. The TV gifted to General General was supposedly a 12-inch Muntz model. However, the TV used in the show was clearly a prop and not an actual Muntz. Also, a 12-inch Muntz would have been a model M30 made only in 1950. Since this was December of 1953, the TV given to General General would have been three years old. This was the last episode of the original 13-episode order CBS placed. Fortunately, CBS picked up the series for the remainder of the season, and we got nine more episodes. Episode 14, Chief of Staff. M.D. Angelo is scheduled for prostate surgery and is embarrassed and wants to keep it a secret from the staff. Bob Scannell has the eyes for a hospital volunteer, and General General gets a new nurse that happens to be black. When she freezes during an emergency, she has to explain to Potter, that it was the first time she was ever asked to put her hands on a white patient. When Alma is miffed at what M.G. Angelo said in his death letter that she opened even though he survived, she announces to the hospital about the fine recovery he and his prostate are making. And everyone has a birthday surprise for Potter when he finds his belongings from the old MASH office have finally made it home, and they've been all set up in his new office. Notably absent from this episode was J.O. Sanders as Dr. Pfeiffer. Although he returns in the following episode, behind the scenes, the producers felt his character just wasn't working, and plans were in the works to replace his character. Episode 15, CYA. Mulcahy is angry to learn the VA never paid the doctor who did his ear surgery, and Alma gladly informs him it was because the surgery was done at a non-VA-approved hospital. Klinger begins working rehabilitation with some patients, and a mother visits the front desk looking for her son, but no one in the hospital knows who she's talking about. One by one, she is handed off to virtually everyone, and finally to Potter, who meets with her and comes to the realization of her mental state when he reads the telegram she's been holding on to. Kay Callan was the distressed mother. Uh, she's been in a lot of things over the years, notably Martha Kent on Lois and Clark. And a pre-30-something Timothy Buzzfield also appeared in this episode in one of his earliest roles. Episode 16, Yours Truly, Max Klinger. An old mash trope is again used as a narrative device. Klinger is writing a letter to Radar O'Reilly. Through his letter writing, we see Klinger and Soon Lee discussing the baby's name. Klinger is working a shady side job from his desk. M.D. Angelo hires a new surgeon, Dr. Boyer, a Korean vet who served as a battalion aid surgeon, and he's even missing a leg to show for it. But he is acerbic, surly, and painfully direct, which doesn't endear him to the staff or patients, or M. D'Angelo, who tries to fire him after being insulted. But after seeing Boyer's work in the OR, Potter makes sure he keeps his job. At the end, we see Klinger's letter being read by Radar in the middle of a wedding rehearsal to be continued. 
David Ackroyd is added to the cast as Dr. Boyer. With early roles on Another World and Dallas, he had been in a number of TV movies, including the 1977 sci-fi TV movie Exo-Man. And this was the last we saw of J.O. Sanders as Dr. Pfeiffer. He would not return to the show, but no explanation was given as to his character's departure. Here we start to see some tinkering with the show. The producers felt Dr. Boyer would be a more compelling character, which he was. As the show went on, it was clear he was supposed to take on a sort of angry Hawkeye role. He was kind of a jerk, but not a bad guy. If only this was the only change they had made. Episode 17, It Had to Be You. Written and directed by Larry Galbart. Potter, Mulcahy, and Klinger are preparing for the road trip to Radar's wedding. But shenanigans take place when no one else but Radar comes barging through the door. When the women folk go make coffee, Radar confesses to the men he was told by a friend his bride-to-be Sandy has been unfaithful, and he fled the wedding. Meanwhile, Dr. Boyer has women problems of his own, as in the lack of one. He hits the local bar, the recovery room, to meet one, and guess whose bride-to-be walks in. Boyer makes a half-hearted pass at her and gets slapped for his trouble. Heading to the Potters, Sandy and Radar make up, and Father Mulcahy performs an impromptu wedding in the living room. During the episode tag, we pan across two different bedrooms and find both Boyer and Radar have evidently both had a satisfying evening. Sandy was played by Kathleen Wilhoyt. Many might remember her as Benny's girlfriend on L.A. Law or as Susan Lewis's annoying sister on E.R. In this episode, we also see Gary Berghoff reprise his role as Radar. This was likely testing the waters to bring the Radar character back to television, and he would come back again in a TV pilot that never got picked up as a series. Episode 18, Odds and Ends. Klinger and Soon Lee are getting ready for the baby, and Klinger is working three jobs to make money, but gets the idea that gambling will help him make his needed funds. Meanwhile, it seems Bob Scannell needs surgery to remove some old shrapnel, and he sees Mulcahy to make changes to his will. Klinger's bets pay off to the tune of $500, his goal amount. Instead of calling it quits and keeping his winnings, he loses it all in a bathroom craps game. Klinger and Bob are both soon at the bar, drowning their worries. Instead of having to tell Soon Lee he lost it all, he finds an envelope in his desk with $500, courtesy Bob Scannell, who it turns out has a coffee can full of cash he has saved over the last 35 years he's been in the hospital. Episode 19, Another Saturday Night Mrs. Potter is going away overnight to visit her sister, leaving Colonel Potter all alone in the house. At first, he's enjoying being by himself, but that quickly fades, and Potter heads to the recovery room bar across the street from General General. He is waited on by Sarah, the reformed prostitute from Episode 6, Night Shift. Klinger stops by for a to-go order more than once for Soon Lee with no time to talk. M.D. Angelo pops in, and Potter is stuck having dinner with him. Mulcahy stops by, and it becomes a free-for-all as everybody identifies Sarah as someone different, and Boyer has to deal with an angry patient punching holes in the walls. 
MD Angelo tells the patients in this episode the VA purchased the Ritz Brothers film catalog to show on movie nights. The Ritz Brothers were a comedy act that were live performers and had 20 films from 1934 to 1956. And this episode aired opposite the Little House on the Prairie movie finale, The Last Farewell. Episode 20, Fever Pitch. It's April, but there's a heat wave, and it's 93 degrees at 8 a.m. at General General, which has no central air conditioning. The hospital is in need of a cooling blanket, a new device the hospital doesn't have. After a visit from Boyer, M.D. Angelo officially unofficially authorizes Potter to acquire this device. But Klinger is also working to obtain the same thing, and he beats Potter's efforts. Meanwhile, Mulcahy moves into a ratty apartment, his first time living on his own. With this episode, the rating slide was quite noticeable. Instead of consistently coming in first or second place, it now came in third, with only a 19 share. Episode 21, By the Book The doctors must deal with a patient who thinks he's Superman, putting Soon Lee in danger. A quick-thinking Mulcahy uses kryptonite to deal with him. Meanwhile, at the recovery room bar, they have a guess-the-number-of-beans-in-the-jar contest, with a motor scooter being the prize, and M. D'Angelo wins. Klinger discovers Bob Scannell has a uranium map, and the pair decide to go prospecting. And Potter searches for an antibiotic that hasn't been approved by the VA. This one is a real oddity. People with home recording collections have this one missing from their set. Even though IMDb and Wikipedia currently show March 5, 1984 as the air date, old versions of this IMDb listing omit this episode altogether, and older episode guides also omitted it. TV Tango shows a rerun of Aftermash scheduled instead of by the book. This would have been the only aired program that night on any channel that was a rerun. Aftermash source David Goner tells me it indeed did eventually air. It must have been on one of those Sunday night repeats over the summer of 84. The reason it does not appear in older episode guides is because he had omitted it in error due to its out-of-sequence airing when he put together the first Aftermash website some 20 years ago. His episode guide was then copied by others and got entered in the original IMDb listing. A copy of Action Comics is clearly seen, as well as copyrighted DC characters Clark Kent, Lois Lane, as well as Kryptonite are all mentioned several times. Now, I had thought it was possible that the production did not get legal clearances for all of this, or after viewing it, DC was unhappy with a negative depiction of a veteran believing he was Superman and the episode was pulled. But writer-producer Ken Levine tells me this was not the case, as legal clearances were obtained before filming. As to the actual reasons for pulling it, he simply does not recall, and it is likely we may never know. In 2012, a recording of this episode from a late 1990s airing on the Czech Republic's TV Nova surfaced on YouTube and is still viewable there. And you're in luck if you speak the Moravian dialect of Czech. Episode 22, Up and Down Payments Dr. Boyer seems to be more comfortable at General General friendly with the patients and hitting on nurses, but his mood is spoiled when the elevator breaks and he has to take the stairs with his prosthetic leg. The Clingers are out shopping for a new rental apartment. 
and get talked into buying a new $14,000 house instead that is really more than they can afford. All Klinger has to do is take out a loan. Later, Mulcahy points out the $2,800 balloon payment due in two years. Klinger later physically confronts the real estate agent who had concealed this and gets arrested for assault. At the jail, Soon Lee goes into labor. The closing credit reads, Continued Next Season. And this closes out the first season of Aftermash. The producers must have been fairly sure it would get a second season with that closing credit. But it wasn't until May that CBS officially announced the renewal. And in September 1984, Aftermash returned on a new night, Tuesday, an hour earlier. And as we'll see, more changes were made. Barbara Townsend as Mildred Potter and John Chappelle as M. D'Angelo would not be returning. More on this in Behind the Scenes. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Hey, my, my desk. It's making room for the new computer. Well, we just got new computers. I'm talking about a really big computer. Uh, is this big enough to run mainframe programs? Piece of cake. Is it big enough for hundreds of workstations? Of course. Wow, uh, for thousands of customer accounts? No sweat, kid. Wow, that does sound big. <laughs> you better not spill your coffee on it. This is it? Where's the rest of it? The IBM mid-range. Big computers in small packages. Oh, and tied into our IBM mid-range computer, you can check calendars, get phone lists, even send instant memos. Okay, let's see if anyone's awake out there. How much wood would a woodchuck chuck? If a woodchuck could chuck wood. Huh? I'll need specifics. What size woodchuck? What type wood? I got some ideas on this woodchuck thing. Let's do lunch. Why wasn't I asked to head a project woodchuck? It works. IBM office systems, electronic mail, and a whole lot more. Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. Wednesday on Whiz Kids, Richie's accused of embezzlement. Richie Adler stole the money after all. Sending Farley and friends out to catch the real culprits before they catch him. Wednesday. We've got the touch. America. UNCBS. UNCBS. Season 2, Episode 1. Less Miserables opens with a completely retooled theme song, among other things. So here we go.
picking up exactly where the last episode left off, with Soon Lee now being wheeled into General General for Potter to deliver her baby. A man in a sharp suit arrives, asking questions, and following people around the hospital, taking notes. Klinger and his cellmate switch places, and his cellmate gets arraigned, while Klinger gets released, which leads to him donning a nurse uniform, sneaking around the hospital. Of course, with patients swiping Boyer's leg to delay surgery, Bob Scannell hunting for his missing otter, a woman having a baby, and a hairy man walking around in a nurse's uniform, General General seemed like a total madhouse to Bert Philbrick, VA regional headquarters representative, who relieves M. D'Angelo of his position. To be continued. First, let's talk about the opening segment. Gone were the vintage 50s imagery, replaced with illustrations of the actors and scenes from the retooled show, complete with Jamie Farr depicted in a nurse's uniform. The theme is now a more upbeat, bland, generic-sounding arrangement of the Aftermath theme, missing the Suicide is Painless portion that originally led into it. David Aykroyd is now in the opening credits, and Max Wright played Bert Philbrick. He was later Willie on ALF. Season 2, Episode 2, Calling Dr. Habibi. Tuesday on the all-new Aftermath. This hospital has the most rotten luck in the world. Klinger takes the plunge. They're not taking you alive. Throw down that plunger, Klinger. I don't want to suck your face, but I will if I have to. General General is getting ready to meet the new administrator, Wally Wainwright. He sneaks into the hospital, and the first person he encounters is Klinger. He is determined to whip the hospital into shape within six months, no matter the consequence to personnel. The Potters take in Soon Lee with Klinger still on the lam, posing as Dr. Habibi, giving Wainwright the full tour, who is not easily fooled, and had pegged who Klinger was early on. Alma Cox is demoted to be Potter's clerk, Klinger's old job. Later, after dinner at the Potters, Klinger stops by and leaves just as fast when the doorbell rings. To be continued. Anne Petoniak is added to the cast as Mildred Potter, and Peter Michael Getz is new hospital administrator Wally Wainwright. Withholding further comments until behind the scenes. Season 2, Episode 3, Strangers and Other Lovers. Potter discovers Alma Cox is settling into his office as clerk, and that she is a GS-7, entitled to the highest paying available job. Suffering saddle soap! She even interrupts his surgery and his bedtime at home with administrative concerns. Klinger is sleeping in an alley, as well as popping up here and there, even at Boyer's when he's in bed with a woman he took home from the recovery room. Boyer feels guilty when the woman turns out to be the wife of one of his patients, unknown to him previously. Klinger's running around has him fall into a den of criminals in the apartment on the other side of the wall from Mulcahy, who calls the police on the lot of them, getting Klinger finally nabbed by the cops. To be continued. One note on this episode, probably for the first time ever, we hear a laugh track in the OR, something MASH in this series never did until now, which does not bode well for this season. Season 2, Episode 4, Trials Klinger is arraigned for real this time, with a litany of added charges since last time, and the trial gets underway. The prosecution brings up Klinger's cross-dressing Korean record, as well as his 57 Section 8 applications. Everyone, from Bob Scannell to Colonel Flagg, is brought in to testify against him. 
it turns out Colonel Flagg was already investigating Klinger for communist sympathies. Even the judge sees through Flagg's nonsense, but is of the opinion Klinger needs some mental help. Thinking it's better than prison, Klinger decides to go along with it. In the B story, Boyer and Wainwright lock horns again over how to handle a patient's surgery to the point where they almost come to blows. To be continued. This episode opened with yet another new opening, but using the same Season 2 theme. Instead of the illustrations, live video of character interactions and hospital goings-on were presented, much like a typical sitcom opening. And yes, Ed Winter returned to the role of Colonel Flagg for the first time in five years. Season 2, Episode 5, Madness to His Method. This episode is set to Colonel Potter writing a letter to psychiatrist Sidney Friedman, catching him up with all the recent events. Klinger has to deal with the competent, new, young female psychiatrist, Dr. Dudziak, who he thinks will be hard to fool into keeping him in the mental ward and out of prison. But she seems to be on to his fake crazy act. This leads to seeing Klinger in various outfits and nutty situations reminiscent of his 4077th days. Meanwhile, Dr. Boyer is hitting on Dudziak, and she rebuffs his advances, in the buff, and he retreats. Potter deals with a silent patient in the mental ward who possibly went through the 4077th as a wounded soldier. Finally, seeing Klinger in a GI uniform, he makes a breakthrough, which leads to an all-out food fight in the cafeteria. And finally, we get an episode that doesn't end to be continued. Wendy Gerard joins the cast as the new general general psychiatrist, Dr. Lenore Dudziak. The following Monday, Aftermath did not air in its regular time slot, although I could never find out what did. The next day, its cancellation was announced by CBS, the first CBS series to be canceled of the 1984 fall season. Season 2, Episode 6, The Recovery Room. It's 5.30 a.m., and the Potters are up to catch Father Mulcahy on a TV sermon. The Potters are finding life helping raise the baby Klinger stressful, and they have a fight. Klinger gets the idea to file for total mental disability. We get to see a flashback of him arriving in Korea with him embellishing his experience. Later, the Potters go to the recovery room for dinner and discussion, which leads to making up in a motel room. Timothy Stack returned as a completely different patient in this episode, and Tom Isbell as a young, fresh-faced intern, Dr. Andy Caldwell, brief as his stint will be. These past six episodes aired over the course of seven weeks. In the following weeks, holiday specials, as well as an Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom promo special, would air in its time slot. Aftermath returned on December 4th with Season 2, Episode 7, Ward is Hell. Klinger is running a lottery based on what numbers are announced on the morning and afternoon PA. Dr. Boyer comes down with an infection, landing him in his own ward, and when Mildred and Soon Lee get involved with the lottery, Potter has had it and tries to put an end to it, briefly, until reminded it will help Soon Lee and the baby. Later, everybody shows up at Boyer's bed to visit him, and he finally emotionally opens up to them, enthusiastically discussing an Abbott and Costello movie. 
For many people, this was the last seen episode of After MASH. Because following this episode, CBS, who had already canceled the series, pulled the next episode from the scheduled airing of December 11th, even though it had been advertised in several newspaper listings and in TV Guide for that date. Thus, any website you see with this air date is incorrect. Season 2, Episode 8, Saturday's Heroes, was originally scheduled to air December 11, 1984, at 7.30 Central, after Frosty the Snowman. However, with the show canceled, CBS chose to air Twas the Night Before Christmas. This episode would not air until almost six months later, on May 31, 1985, well after the show had been officially canceled. As a result, many people never knew it aired, and few had seen it. It's the weekend, and everybody has romantic weekend plans. Klinger has a weekend pass to spend with Soon Lee. The Potters are off to a weekend getaway, and Boyer has plans with a new nurse. All plans go sideways when Wainwright cancels all passes, Elma Cox joins the Potters on the road trip, that's before the car breaks down, and Boyer's nurse has to work. Klinger sneaks out anyway, only to find a gypsy consulted to finally name their baby. Boyer and Wainwright actually connect a little over drinks at the recovery room bar, and Klinger and Soon Lee finally get alone time in isolation at the hospital, courtesy Dr. Dudziak. Kathleen Friedman played the gypsy woman. She has nearly 300 TV and film credits dating from 1948 to 2003, she would often make multiple appearances as different characters on different episodes of the same show. She was Mrs. Poole's mother on Valerie, Mama Cruckshell on DuckTales, and the voice of Peg's mom on Married with Children. Also, Armin Shimmerman pops up on this one as Alma Cox's date, who makes an abrupt departure. This was the last aired episode of Aftermath in the United States and was likely seen by very few. The next episode had originally been scheduled to air along with Saturday's Heroes in a one-hour block on May 31, 1985. But as a final slap in the face, CBS preempted it to air the 30-minute news special, Tax Reform, Other Views. This additional episode remained unseen for decades in the United States. It wasn't until June of 2015 that a viewer sent a tape of an Australian airing to a MASH fan blog. Then, in August of 2016, Season 2, Episode 9, Wet Feet, finally made it to YouTube. During a torrential downpour, General General is designated a disaster relief area. Potter, Mulcahy, Klinger, and Boyer have a card game. Alma Cox is, of course, a civil defense nut and organizes a command center. She also makes an attempt to get her old job back by physically offering herself to Wainwright, who turns her down and sits in on the card game instead. Soon, Mulcahy, Dudziak, and Bob Scannell all sit in. Dr. Caldwell, the intern, misses an internal injury on a man presenting with a broken arm. Meanwhile, Wainwright had alerted the newspaper of the hospital's preparedness, and they send over a reporter and photographer. Soon, injuries from a tornado are being brought in and fill the lobby. Our three main characters know exactly what to do. And the reporters recognize Klinger for stepping up and essentially taking charge to the disappointment and ire of Wainwright. 
One additional episode had been written by Ken Levine and David Isaacs called All Day, All Night, Marianne, which would have been episode 32, but it was never produced. Behind the Scenes Critical reaction to the first season was mixed at best. A mixture of heavy and light, good writing and acting, said Los Angeles Times. Right as rain and dull as dishwater, said the Washington Post. Aftermash was a show our family watched on Monday nights before Newhart. When re-watching this show, I remembered most of the first season episodes. After a few episodes, hearing the theme was like putting on a comfy pair of shoes, like M.A.S.H. I always was curious as to how this show ends up on these worst TV show lists. In my memory, Aftermash was a decent, popular show, but I had never seen season two until I watched it this summer. We had taken a long road trip as well as moved twice in 1984 and had barely hooked up a new TV by the time the fall season started, only to find Kate and Allie on Monday nights after Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Aftermash didn't stick around long enough for us to find it again. Unknown to me, there was network shenanigans going on ahead of its season two return. Season one had performed very strongly for CBS. It ended up being the number 15 show for the 1983-84 season, performing higher than the first season of MASH. This resulted in its renewal. Still, the network wasn't fully happy with the rating slide that took place over the season. The show went from a 47 to a 19 share and began to affect the numbers for Newhart, which aired afterward. Thus, CBS felt they were justified in implementing some changes for the second season. First, the show would move to Tuesday night, to an earlier time slot, to directly compete with the A-Team. The thinking was, Aftermash would catch the older audience not watching Hannibal and crew on NBC. CBS notoriously played up this move, with TV Guide advertisements showing illustrations of Klinger, dressed as a nurse, shaving off Mr. T's mohawk, with the caption, Klinger takes on the A-Team. An article in TV Guide said the series would have more energy, more drama, and would become more colorful. Yes, Klinger would be back in women's clothing, as well as have other nutty situations take place. The character of Mike D'Angelo was replaced with Wally Wainwright, a much darker administrator. And Anne Petoniak was brought in to play Mildred Potter. The role of Dr. Boyer would also be expanded. All of these changes were made because CBS was trying to recapture some of the zaniness and desperation of the early years of the original MASH, according to the TV Guide article. Season 2 started off pretty strong with the first episode airing on a Sunday before the Emmy Awards and winning the time slot. But two nights later, the A-Team won. Even ABC's foul-ups, bleeps, and blunders came in second. By episode 5, viewers had tired of the dragging Klinger storyline, and the ratings dropped to single digits, ensuring its cancellation. The show dropped to as low as 66th on the ratings. Indeed, the time spent wrapping up the Klinger storyline took far too long. The bulk of the first five episodes, to the exclusion of additional plot lines, and the show completely lost its way. With the exception of one time, the seven episodes of season two most people saw never dealt with a veteran patient. It was all Klinger, dealing with the new administrator and interactions between the doctors. 
The character of Klinger regressed from the mature family man, always working an angle, back to the zany costumes and antics of his 4077 days. And don't even get me started on the boneheaded replacement of Barbara Townsend as Mildred. What were they thinking? They didn't just replace the actress. The character was portrayed completely differently. No offense to Anne Petoniak, but season one Mildred was an adorable, smart-as-a-whip firecracker. Season two Mildred seemed like a Gracie Allen imitation, which TV Guide said that was what they were aiming for. She also had no chemistry with Harry Morgan. From the revamped theme song to the episodes themselves, the tone was completely off. Season two had little of the humanity and heart of the first season. And what a shame that the best episodes of season two, the final two, weren't even allowed to air in sequence with the others, and thus have been seen by very, very few people. Yes, season two was headed for failure, with or without the help of Mr. T. What have the show creators said about Aftermash? Creator Larry Gelbart. The show was far less than brilliant. I take full responsibility for its failure. If I hadn't been so in love with the title, I might have thought out the show to go with it in a more objective way. I knew the series would inherit Potter, Mulcahy, and Klinger. I knew, too, that, good as these people are, a leading player was going to be necessary. There was an attempt to build up a central character, a doctor who had lost his leg in Korea, and played wonderfully by David Aykroyd but other attempts at making a show with its own tone, style, and intent were not as successful. Probably an hour show would have been a better format. Oh well, you win some and you lose some. Except on TV, you lose in front of a whole lot of people. Executive producer Ken Levine, when asked about the worst thing he's ever written, said, It's hard to top or bottom after MASH. Take the three weakest characters of MASH, Put them in the hilarious confines of a veteran's hospital, and you have a recipe for classic comedy. I thought at least I'd make a fortune in merchandising on those aftermash action figures. Gelbart was being overly hard on himself. Seeing how well the show performed in its first season, it was the pointless tinkering with the show by CBS I hold directly responsible for the show's demise. However, since they have to maintain a congenial relationship with them, it is difficult for TV writers and producers to be candid about the shortcomings or mistakes of TV network executives. And I think even the show producers were influenced by the negativity the show received over the years in popular culture, opinions likely formed due to the public's memory of the short second season. While MASH had been endlessly rerun since 1979, Aftermash has never received rerun syndication in the U.S., although it obviously received airings overseas. Thus, in the public consciousness, it becomes difficult or impossible to judge Aftermash on its own merits and to separate the quality first season from the terribly revamped second. In 1999, Time magazine listed the show as one of the 100 worst ideas of the century. And following suit, in 2002, TV Guide ranked it number 7 on the 50 Worst TV Shows Ever list, to the omission of such fine content as Mr. Smith and We Got It Made, examples of truly bad shows from the 1983 fall season. Utter lunacy. 
now Aftermash routinely makes these bad TV show or terrible TV spinoff lists. And I wonder how many people responsible for putting together these lists have ever actually watched the show. We are now in the position where it's just accepted as fact that the show was terrible, even by those who have never seen it, simply because this is something that has been repeated for the last 20 years. Larry Gelbart wrote and produced a few TV movies, as well as produced the 1997 Showtime series Fast Track. He died in 2009 at age 81. Ken Levine and writing partner David Isaacs went on to be heavily involved in the productions of Cheers, Wings, and Frasier, writing numerous episodes together. Isaacs was a consulting producer on Mad Men. Levine wrote a book, The Me Generation, by me, growing up in the 60s. He has published a blog since 2005 and currently produces the podcast Hollywood and Levine. Harry Morgan continued to act for a number of years following after MASH, including the short-lived 1986 series Black's Magic with Hal Linden, and even reprising his role as Dragnet's Bill Gannon in 1995 on The Simpsons. He retired from acting in 1999 and died in 2011 at age 96. William Christopher made a few additional appearances following Aftermash, most notably playing Father Tobias on Days of Our Lives in 2012. He died in 2016 at age 84. Jamie Farr likewise made additional guest appearances following Aftermash, sometimes as himself, such as on Just Shoot Me and That 70s Show, now 84, he regularly makes promotional appearances on MeTV for MASH. Rosalind Chow found steady work following after MASH, including the recurring role of Keiko O'Brien on 27 episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. She has over 120 film and TV credits and will appear in Disney's live-action Mulan, set for a 2020 release. Gary Berghoff made very few acting appearances following his guest appearance on Aftermash. One of these was a pilot called Walter that was never picked up for a series, in which Corporal Walter O'Reilly moves away from Iowa, stops using the name Radar, and becomes a police officer in St. Louis. It aired once as a CBS special presentation on July 17, 1984, back when the TV networks would air busted pilots during the summer. It was shown in the eastern and central time zones, but was preempted by news coverage of the Democratic National Convention on the West Coast. Now 75 and living out of the public eye, he enjoys fishing and inventing fishing tackle, which he holds several patents for. Aftermash has sadly been ignored by 20th, now 21st Century Fox Television. Along with other Fox TV properties, James at 15, The Wizard, and The New Adventures of Beans Baxter, Aftermash not only never had syndicated reruns, it has never been released to any form of home video. Television shows filmed, as opposed to being shot on videotape, require extra care and expense to restore and preserve the original film elements. Aftermash was a filmed series. According to two sources claiming knowledge on the matter, Fox never preserved Aftermash in long-term storage, and as a result, the original film elements were discarded in 1988. 
When I asked producer Ken Levine about this, he expressed doubt that this actually happened. Still, if true, it means there will never be an official DVD or streaming release for this show, and the only way anyone will ever see it is from the home video recordings fans made from the network airings. What a crime this show never got more exposure. The first season was a great effort, which resulted in a decent show. The humor was gentle, not over the top, and didn't insult your intelligence. Would I consider it one of the best shows ever? No, but it was perfectly fine for what it was. Its biggest crime was probably trying to do too much in a 30-minute format, and that it would suffer the inevitable comparison to M.A.S.H. Indeed, People magazine in 1983 acknowledged, It may be a little hospital on the prairie, or a doctor knows best, but one thing is certain, it is not M.A.S.H. And therein lies the rub. Next time on Forgotten TV. This is the story behind the most incredible series of murders to ever occur in the city of Seattle, Washington. You never read about them in your local newspapers or heard about them on your local radio or television station. Why? Because the facts were watered down, torn apart, and reassembled. In a word, falsified. He's saying Lou Garou. Werewolf. He's saying werewolf. He says that I'm its next victim. That's not your garden variety stiff out there. Something very strange did that. A legendary creature with an unearthly thirst for revenge. She would transform herself into a giant spider, sting them, wrap them in her web, and feed on them at her leisure. Who can survive the curse of the Black Widow? Night Stranglers, Black Widows, Cat Creatures, and Werewolves. Oh my. It's more creepy TV monster movies of the 70s. That's next time on Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with CBS, 20th Century Fox Television, MeTV, or any TV network or production company involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. All mentioned series and associated characters are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels that post episodes of Aftermash. John Nelson, Buckhead JW, Jeff Valkenberg, T.W. Walker, Adam Pierce, T. Tresser, and Cecil Kravitz. As well as YouTube channels Al Rock, Gilmore Box, Movie Clips, Princess Angelina Raven Roth Thompson Love Jr., Kim Possible 2013 Rules, Depute, Philip Dingra, Jan Schmelter, Steve Harold, TV Rewind, Father Putz, as well as Rob and his MASH blog, MASH4077TV.com, David Goner, and thanks to producer Ken Levine for his podcast, blog, and answering my email. 
A significant amount of time is put into the research and production of Forgotten TV. The easiest way to support Forgotten TV is the next time you shop online, please click through to Amazon on any link in the show notes, website, or Facebook page and do your regular shopping. It costs you nothing extra. Those extra few dollars a month help offset the costs of DVDs, books, and equipment I need to produce the show. If you'd like to affect the podcast lineup, visit my Amazon wish list and help me out by getting me a DVD set of whatever show you'd like to hear on Forgotten TV. For content in addition to that presented in the podcast, like the Forgotten TV Facebook page or follow Forgotten TV on Twitter. Those links are found at Forgotten.tv. Forgotten TV is a member of the Frequent Wire Podcast Network, where you can find other great entertainment podcasts. I am your host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV.